Hightailing Through History, a history podcast where two sisters get high and surprise each other with a story from history's vault of the weird and the wonderful. I am your older sister, Laurel. Leaving me to be the younger sister, Katie. With nowhere near as much good lighting as this one. You yeah. came on in like supermodel pose and I came out and I was like, ah, crap. <laughs> oh, well. Strike a pose. Yeah. So here's our first <laughs> video podcast that we've ever done. We've been podcasting. We've had this show, show for two years now. This is our first video podcast. I'm really excited about it. Laurel is excited about it. <laughs> Here we are. It's so good to like feel like we're interacting more with you. And uh, yeah, I, I actually I realized probably this is the first time that a lot of people are meeting us, not only seeing us, but maybe meeting us for the first time. So yeah, we're sisters, Laurel and Katie. <laughs> we're no scholars or professors of history or anything like that. We are two people who just really love learning all the little bits of history, things outside of the textbook, outside of the classrooms that, that we had and uh, digging a little deeper into stories that we think are really interesting. We research them, meet back here in our smoke circle, as we call it, and get to tell them to each other and to you and like just all hang out and History have a, have a enthusiasts, together. one might say. One might say that. <laughs> so, uh, so here we are. Katie, how are you, how are you doing? All, all good in your world? Are you having... Yeah, well, you know... now that I've been bathed in drink and, you know, not had boxes falling down on me, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Katie, we've had to start this a couple of times because uh, between my doing the old intro from two years ago and <laughs> Katie's cat deciding to do a flying Spider-Man leap to the back of her head and oh, spilling, spilling cannabis drink everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're like, third time's a charm, right? Third time's a charm. This is It's like that meme fine. where they say they're like, how to do Zoom calls as a cat owner, and it's the cat duct taped to the wall while the person's on the computer. So, yeah. Here we are. Katie, what are you, uh, Partaking what are you bathed in? Yeah. Bathed what, what is... in? Yes. I've been baptized in uh, my can drink. It's my, uh, my cannabis drink of choice. Also, luckily for me, which I didn't have on earlier, it has a sealable top, which will now be being utilized ah. <laughs> when I set it down so that no other mishaps may occur. It's the uh, lemon lavender. Okay. What are you partaking of this evening? Oh, well, <laughs> so I had a little bit of a pre-roll left, a gelato pre-roll. So I had that gelato. Um, does it taste like, what like all the wrappers? I wish. It's what all the wrappers talk about. Um, but I, it's one of my favorite strains. I like it. It's very creative. I got so stoned, though. I'm not going to lie. I, I got stoned. <laughs> and then I decided that I was going to get ready. And then I was, like, just hypnotizing myself with my eyeshadow brush as I was in the bathroom. And I was like, I feel like I've been doing my makeup for three hours. And it was only about 10 minutes. But I was sitting there, like, going and going. Uh, to the point where I even put perfume on. Like, I'm like, <laughs> well, you smell like I'm nice, going on a I'm date. Sure. <laughs> I'm sitting here by myself. Like, I'm going to go on a date with all of you. I the effort you put Thank into you. this. I smell delicious, but I'm I like, showered. I was like, what am I doing right now? I'm like, go sit down. Crazy. Gosh. But so, some gelato. And uh, yeah, I feel great. I'm ready to. Talk about some history. 
Are you ready to talk about some history? I'm ready, but I also know what else is coming, and now it's going to be videoed for the world to see. Yes. Bottle leaf grinder. So this is the first time that we're being seen, so people get to see the magic of bottle leaf grinder. It's so not gonna... great. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like it. <laughs> I, I don't like rock, though. paper, scissors either, though, because I have, like, massive anxiety because I can never get yeah. my timing right. This will be great. So <laughs> it's basically rock, paper, scissor. We've just changed it. So here's rock is kind of the same. It's a bottle. There's your bottle. Oh. Leaf it's is paper. paper, essentially. Paper. Leaf. And then grinder. <laughs> Make like a little cage with our hands. So <laughs> bottle, leaf, grinder. Pick it. Whoever gets the whoever wins it is the person who goes first because we don't have better systems of doing these things oh yeah especially for an auditory two years yeah and, I thought, and that's what i thought was so funny about it I'm like no one can see this and here we are all right all right i'll slow it down no go there faster go. faster is better for me <laughs> okay get it over with bottle leaf grinder shoot okay Did i grind your leaf you ground my leaf okay katie's going first Oh, prepare yourself. Okay, so this week I decided to switch it out. Uh, we're going to be doing the real stories behind nursery rhymes. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is going to get dark. <laughs> it is, but that's okay. We're going to have fun with it because we know how to have fun. I've got fruit roll-ups. I'm ready to go. I have my can. <laughs> so we will start. With a familiar one that everybody knows. Actually, we're all probably going to know most of these. There's only one I didn't know. Uh, Ring Around the Rosie. So the version that I am familiar with, probably the same one you are, is Ring Around the Rosie, Pockets Full of Posy, Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down. Katie says, like, so enthusiastically. <laughs> so we all fall down. Yeah, right? Did you ever actually sing that as a kid? Because we used to actually join hands and like dance in a circle like a oh, yeah. cult. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the rosy, the lyrics are referring to, is supposed to refer to a rosy rash that some plague victims would sometimes get. Because as everyone commonly associates it with is the bubonic plague, right? It still exists today, actually. Oh, yeah. Still oh, are... It does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They can just treat it. And now we... It's a bacteria. Don't, there we go. I was like, that that's I said virus. It I didn't that sound right. right. Yeah. 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 It's a virus. Um, oh, God, it's a bacteria. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. You're stoned. So, so the pockets full of posy uh, refer to flowers sometimes used in the doctor masks, right? Those big plague doctor masks during that time, those big bird looking beaks. <laughs> and uh, the ashes referred to cremation. Uh, is a common way to deal with the masses of bodies because people were dying at such an intense rate that they couldn't, they did not physically have time to be burying everyone by the time the bodies were starting to foul. So mm -hmm. you now they would have mass cremations, unfortunately. Um, and then the falling down signifies death. So, <laughs> however, listen, so we all thought this was what it's about, but here's the deal these days. Historians and scholars today, they are not sure now that they believe 
that this is true, like the records say, because the first recorded instance of this rhyme was actually not in England. It was in, it appeared earlier, it was something like 30 years before uh, the plague even struck. Okay, so not even present around the same time. And it was written down in like Germany and Belgium and like other countries. And it was like, well, that's weird because I don't think they got hit with the plague. At least not what my research was showing. So they think... Germany? Did they? Didn't it like wipe out like a third of the Eurasian population? I mean, you're probably right, dude. Let's find out. I mean, I don't know what Germany's doing to keep. If we they want to did not out of get rid of their cats. That's what they did. It reached northern Germany. Oh, it did eventually spread. Well, okay, so it did spread. Okay. But I know that they said because it showed up in England first is what I was oh, right. reading. Okay, and then it kind of like moved its way across Europe. Um, but it was like thirty years before it even hit that it was written down. So it was like, well. That's weird. But it it has eerie, like, it's easy to draw the conclusions, though. And the, sure. um, there are different versions of it. That is another thing that uh, scholars and historians were like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> because I guess some it's common for things that are not, that don't show up consistently, usually means that it didn't originate from this source that they were saying i was like okay mm -hmm. well i see you guys get paid to know what you're doing so i'm just gonna believe you <laughs> i'm putting my trust in you i am putting my trust in them uh they said that the nursery rhyme probably has origins in the religious ban on dancing among many protestants in the 19th century in britain as well as north america so they were saying that it probably just really has nothing to do with it. People just decided to say it was to do with the plague. And they said the first instance of it actually drawing that parallel to the plague was in a 1940-something newspaper in America mm. after Hiroshima. The bomb went off in Hiroshima. And I was like, oh, that's super dark. But like, yeah, because oh. they did like a play on it. And then people are like, oh, well, you shouldn't make light on that and something. And they're like, well, it's about the plague, so it's dark anyway. So that's actually where the first like plague reference was to it. So there you go. You can sing it and just know that it wasn't about that. So you don't have to feel as bad anymore. You look more horrified than when we started. I'm giving you good news. Okay. <laughs> Next up on our list is Rockabye Baby. Girl's oh. <laughs> like, this is terrible. Maybe it's a good thing I went first. <laughs> so, while it's extremely lighthearted to think of a baby plummeting to its death, most likely, <laughs> most likely the origins of this rhyme is about the son of King James II of England and Mary of Modena. It's widely believed that the boy was not their son at all, but a child who was brought into the birthing room and passed off as their own in order to ensure a Roman Catholic heir to the throne and resist the wind blowing from Protestantism. Protestant. Yeah, good luck with that one. How do you say it? Protestantism? Protestantism? Yeah, okay, I nailed it. 
smash that yeah dude i was like shit why wouldn't you just have your own so she must have been a protestant and he must have been i don't know because it didn't go super into it because these are not super deep sources but um yeah it they well, just now i have protestant. to know now you have to know okay <laughs> well i mean it... they didn't I mean... have their own child is kind of what it sounded like they did not have children due to several factors. They had several miscarriages and stillbirths and premature birth. Mm. They were diagnosed with various illnesses and unable to conceive. So this child would have been their heir to stop a Protestant essentially from ascending to the throne, we shall say. Oh, I, so I that's get it now. Mm -hmm. I get it now. I see what's happening. Okay. Yes. So it was all a lie. <laughs> I get it. They're like... Oh, this is our this is our child, and therefore a Roman Catholic will continue in that line, right. and not like somebody's cousin, you know, a cousin's child or brother's child, you know. Any Game dirty Protestants sort of getting in? Yeah. <laughs> Aren't they all in the same? This is the same thing in Ireland, where I was like, "You're all fighting on the same side, dude. You're not even like Crusader style, where you're at least on different like sides of religion. They're on the same side." So, I mean, they really got down to the nitty gritties here. That was a huge. Oh, I know. Point in France and England, yeah, just division in point right there. Remember, in Ireland, Ireland split sure, but... the whole freaking country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crazy. So, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. So, you're looking at me like you know where this is going. <laughs> I just know you have to catch a tiger by the toe, and I don't know how you're going to oh, do yeah. that. Different versions of this tune have popped up around the world, and most are appropriately innocent, such as the one you just sang. However, in the late 19th and 20th century, the version in the United States, uh, basically the early version was super racist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it involved the racial slur, obviously, that's where this is going, uh, in place of the tiger that kids catch today. That version has, for good reason, fallen out of favor and no longer exists. And well, hopefully it doesn't exist. Uh... I didn't know that till I looked it up, so I'm glad. I had no idea. Laurel's like, I'm never going to use nursery rhymes ever again. <laughs> All right. And this one, this is, in my opinion, the rough one. Okay. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. This popular English nursery rhyme might be about Bloody Mary, daughter of Henry the... One, two, three, eighth? Does that sound right? Stop. Yes, I'm counting. <laughs> is it a V with three lines? Yes. <laughs> is it Which eight? would be Henry the eighth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Henry VIII, or the V with three lines. <laughs> Listen, we do this inebriated. People have to understand that sometimes. <sighs> so about Bloody Mary, are you... I'll give you a second. <laughs> God. All right. Okay. <sighs> okay. I'm ready. Bloody Mary, daughter of Henry VIII. Yeah. <laughs> And, and her murder of Protestants, yes, it's not getting any better as we go. Yeah, he was he was a big one with the whole Catholic-Protestant thing. She so. was worse. So some say that the garden is a reference to the graveyards that were filled with martyred Protestants under her reign. Well, the silver bells, if you're sensitive, maybe shut your ears at this point, and I'll thumbs up you when you're good to listen. <laughs> this was your last warning. Represent 
thumbscrews, and cockle shells, instruments of torture attached to male genitals. And those pretty maids could be people lined up to be executed. You're good to listen again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that one was bad. I was like, oh, someone needs to do, you know what? October, somebody should do one on her. I've never heard of her. On to more happy nursery rhymes. Jack and Jill. One of the most common theories surrounding the story's origin uh, is that Francis Louis the 15th, probably. 16th. It's the 16th. (laughs) Listen, these Roman numerals don't work when you're inebriated, let me tell you. I'm glad that you can do it high, though. Marie Antoinette's husband, it's the 16th. I got this. (laughs) Why did I not just replace these? Like, I went through, like, yeah, well, because I wrote this not high. That's why. (laughs) You're like, I'll know what these are. Right? So, Louis the 16th and his wife, Marie Antoinette, were both found guilty of treason and subsequently beheaded. The only problem is that those events occur nearly 30 years after Jack and Jill was first written, right? Problem. Okay. Most likely, the story attributes to a rhyme of a 17th century king of England, Charles I. Apparently, he attempted to increase taxes on alcohol, which is generally measured in units known as Jacks and Jills. After that failed, he reduced the value of a jack, right, about one-eighth of a pint. And in turn, the jill, which was twice of a jack, right, so you lower the jack, is now down to an eighth. The jill is now only a fourth. So the jill's increased price came tumbling after. Oh. Right. So fucking inflation. We all know that shit. (laughs) Bastard. (laughs) Increasing alcohol taxes. Do you want your people happy or not? Baba Black Sheep. Okay. Yeah. Though most scholars agree that Baba Black Sheep is about the great custom, a tax on wool that was introduced in 1275. Uh, its use of the color black and word master led some to wonder uh, whether uh. it has a racial context. Uh, its political corrective. La la la. Ah. Its political correctness was called into question yet again in the latter part of the 20th century, obvious reasons. Uh, Some schools banned it uh, from being allowed in classrooms, and others simply switched out the word for something less offensive. I've heard farmer. One for the farmer, one for the dame, one for the little boy who listened. That's how I learned it. I never knew master. I mean, I, I did because I'm older than you, but I mean, I think it started getting switched when you were a kid. So, <laughs> yeah. There you go. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, I just remember I had a book and it was Little Baba Black Sheep. And I just remember mm-hmm. he was the only black sheep in the whole thing. And I was like, oh, look at him. He's unique. He's so special. Yeah. And that's all I remember because I hated being told to sing when I, like, n- if it wasn't my idea, I didn't like it. <laughs> Hard to imagine. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not singing. You can't make me. But I loved the 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 thing that you would throw up and run under it. The parachute, parachute. thing. Yeah. Oh, I the parachute. Oh, my gosh. We should do that now in the park by you. <laughs> Look like a parachute, actually. <laughs> you do? Mm-hmm. <gasps> Hell yeah. 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 They're also uh, on sale at the store now, I saw. 
<laughs> so if not, I got you. Is yours rainbow? Yeah, of course. Excellent. All right, on to the next. Three blind mice. Three blind mice is supposedly yet another ode to Bloody Mary's reign. This bitch got around, dude. Like, a lot of shit came from her era. I was like, man, you really, like... Did some <laughs> stuff? Know? Yeah, like, people really remembered you for all of the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, this is an example of what not to do. So, the, the trio, the three blind mice in question... I can do this now and everyone can see me! <laughs> it's the only good thing about this. Uh, is believed to be a group of Protestant bishops. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Radley, and the Archbishop of... You're going to totally hate the way I do this, but just correct me as you see fit. The Archbishop of Can Canterbury? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <sighs> I was, it. Sorry, I was just I was biting my Smash lips. So I was just waiting for you. <laughs> uh, his name was uh, Thomas Cranmer, who, unsuccessfully conspired to overthrow the queen and were burned at the stake for their heresy. Critics suggest that the blindness in the title refers to their religious beliefs. Oh. She's the crazy farmer lady with the knife. That doesn't surprise me. Oh. Mm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I actually had to think about the whole rhyme in my head. I only got as far as the three blind mice. But yeah. Makes sense see how they run it's terrible i actually realized like as i was going through this i was like i actually don't like nursery rhymes because like the older i got i was like these are morbid i don't even know what they're talking about i can just tell it's not good yeah darkness hangs above those words it's the black speech like... of mordor i will not utter it here what skip along to it right like jesus mm -hmm. london bridge is falling so the meaning of london bridge is falling down has long been debated. As kids, did you ever joke that it was like mooning people? Like ripping your pants down? Oh, we did that. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. Yeah. A little more normal. I thought I was just a, a heathen. <laughs> I mean, we, we wouldn't actually like pants people, but no. that would be like <laughs> London yeah. Bridge is falling down. <laughs> Who would do such a thing? <laughs> So its meaning has long been debated. Many believe it refers to the state of disrepair into which the London Bridge went after the Great Fire of London in 1666. Mm -hmm. uh, but some experts argue, convincingly, that it refers to an alleged Viking invasion in 1014. Oh. It would have been just after Ragnar. Ragnar was in the 900s. There's also an episode on that. Go listen to it. So during... If, if you choose. I know I don't like to be told what to do. If that interests you, you should check it out. <laughs> so during which the London Bridge supposedly was pulled down during this invasion. Uh, so though the attack has never been proven, there is a collection of Old Norse sagas or poems. Poems is how we would understand them. They are known as the sagas. It was written in 1230, the year of 1230. BCE. Nope, CE. I can't function today. It contains a verse that sounds much like a nursery rhyme, translating as London Bridge is broken down, gold is won, and bright renown. So. Oh. 
they're they're not sure. Here's the thing is there's no recording in England to say one way or the other, but we have this saga reference that matches up right. perfectly with the nursery rhyme. It could be, or it could just be a coincidence, and maybe it got picked up because they liked the sound of the nursery rhyme when they drove by on the Thames. Like, I don't know. And they're little dragon ships. Like, that sounds nice. Sounds like a right. nice little ditty. We're going to adopt that. As the city's burning, like, see you later. You have I don't know nice why I put them in a the rowboat all of a sudden. but They row. They had, they had, it was more like this, though. I know, this that's why row. I was, I was here, not here. I don't, yeah, like you gotta be like here. Little... They didn't row yeah. like this. They rowed like this. Row. Uh, and our last and final offender, I mean, winner on the list, is all around the mulberry bush. I did not know this one. You know it? Yeah. Okay, I've never heard it. So, apparently, Here We Go, Round the Mulberry Bush, is actually about Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. How was that? Commemorating the walks around the prison yard that the female prisoners and their children would take every day. Some insist that the uh, titular mulberry bush, right? This, this famous little mulberry bush, is the same one that continued to grow on the prison grounds until 2017. Oh. When it died of a beetle infestation and a canker. I didn't know trees could get canker sores, but apparently they can. What? I don't know if it's the same. I mean, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> don't call it the same thing, then. A year after it was shortlisted for Tree of the Year prize. I know, so sad. Whether oh. or not that that is true, the prison, which dates back to 1594, mm -hmm. uh, has chosen a mulberry bush as its emblem. So I think we have our answer. Yeah. Yeah, man. And that's the darkness that I prepared for you today. Now you can lift us up in the spirit of adventure. Oh, that's good. Yeah, they are. They are dark. And it's the same thing with like uh, the grim, grim fairy tales, you know, Cinderella yeah. and all that. They are, they are dark and they have the sisters get their eyes pecked out and have to cut off their heels to fit in the shoe. And their and, toes. One and their cuts toes. off her toes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ash and so yeah cinderella yeah so Auf Deutsch. and that's just cinderella cinderella let alone the, the, little the, mermaid the worst one for me was the little mermaid it's rough and it has yeah. like sexual assault in it so like go yeah. carefully if you're gonna go look at that because it's yikes disney's put out a very different version <laughs> yes they did honestly sometimes it's okay the heist begins with a promise the kind of promise that people when in love often make. You ready for it? Yeah. I'll give you the moon. Okay. You look like, ugh. I, was, I was like, it's, that's completely unrealistic and the stupidest thing to give someone. Like, give me a block of cheese. At least that I can <laughs> utilize. I'm You're, just saying. You look so disappointed. Like, I was, no. I was like, ew. Come up with something more original. Why am I such a, a, a what would the word be? A you Scrooge. Just, you just don't like romance. You just don't like romance. Is that what it romance. is? Yeah. Any sort of romantic movie, movie comes on, Katie's like, ugh. <laughs> no. Shut it down. Dude, okay, but like. I'm not the biggest until, wrong con person either, though. Well, I, get I mean, it. some of them are okay, but like, good romance, like, you know, Aragorn and Arwen, like, poof, listen, that's some good stuff. I'm all about it. 
Gimli and Legolas? Mm, I'm just saying. <laughs> Don't no. You are laughing. Listen. I know what you're saying. I get Here's it. The, have you read the Lord of the Rings? Dude, they literally went on like moonlit walks together. I was like, oh my god, they were so gay. He just didn't say it. They love each other. They are in love. Of course. Yes. Of course they do. And they probably adopted little dwarven children. I hope they did. I, I don't too. know. I'd sit. I'm going to add to the appendices. I'm going to make this my own. Just start your own fan fiction. You know, just like it exists. <laughs> I'm sure there's like a Los Gimli fanfic out there for I sure. I just have a feeling that th that's just really how it was written. Like I get like yeah. in old English stuff was written more majestically than it is now. Now it sounds like a hillbilly busted out with it compared <laughs> to how poetic they were back in the day. Mm -hmm. Eloquent. They were eloquent. But um, I don't know, man. I'm saying because like Frodo and Gandalf didn't even get romantic walks together and they were like BFFs. So, and Samwise and Frodo were also like super tight, right? Right. But they were never like written romantically like Gimli and Legolas were. So I'm picking up what he's putting down. I know it's there, man. I'm just saying. Yeah. Just a feeling I get. I've gotten about two sentences in this Sorry. introduction so far. <laughs> it's okay. Carry I'll on. give you the moon. I'll give you the moon is, is the promise. You know, I love you. I'll do anything for you. Give you anything your heart desires. I will give you the moon. It, it, you know, it's one of those things, as you said, it's, it's so unrealistic. It's one of those things that said when your brain is being flooded by all those love chemicals and you're just like, ah, you know, and it's, it's love or lust or adoration or you know, the prefrontal cortex of your brain has not been fully formed yet, or it's said in, in with the intent of manipulation, that's a big old problem. But, you know, if you're really into somebody and you really care about them, you're going to say big things, right? do big things, big things, for example, like steal the moon. And with that, <laughs> my wide-eyed explorers of history <laughs> and it's look into the human condition. <laughs> ah, I love an intro. I present you with the NASA moon rock heist. So here are my sources. And I think they're really important to talk about. So there's only been one book that's been written about this and it's called sex on the moon by Ben Mesrich. There's a lot of controversy around the book. Um, there's talk that he maybe embellished a little bit in terms of just the invented dialogue, um, looking too heavily on the side of the thief, maybe making him look like too much of a hero, taking too much of his story as truth when it might not actually be that way. You know what I mean? Isn't that so how some you write a decent story though? Like, isn't that kind of expected? Nonfiction. Well, I think there's, there's oh. the expectation of, well, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not a fiction book. This is a real thing that happened. So yeah, I mean, you're wanting to do the best you can with it. I suppose Imagine dialogue I to a certain degree. embellishment. <laughs> well, you want to get the story right. You know, you don't want to perpetuate a bad narrative. Oh, well, if you're changing the story, yes. There's a difference between embellishment and totally changing the facts. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a little bit of that. And especially if somebody wants to look like a better person on the other side of that, they're going to tell a story that makes them look better. And if you're right. perpetuating that when that might not be the case, that could be a problem. So, so they're a liar. <laughs> well, 
just that this is the only book and this is maybe not as fully accurate as it should be or could be. I'll say that. The other source okay. that I use with that is a 2012 documentary from Icon, or Icon Documentaries, that ran on the Nat National Geographic channel called Million Dollar Moon Rock Heist. So those are my two main sources. I've combined them to try and make them make sense. Where there's stuff that it really differentiates, I pretty much go with the uh, documentary because that's backed up by the FBI and by the victims of whom this all happened to. Okay. Okay. It's really important to point that out, but okay. I did also use uh, an article from the Atlantic, which was really interesting. I'm going to talk about that one at the end, but there's a bit of a, a little more to it. Yeah. A little bit of a, okay. an interesting angle to that one. So there we are trying to mesh that together as best we can. Okay. Here we go. Now we're ready. It's 1999. A young 19-year-old Thad Roberts is trying to figure out the trajectory of his Sorry, life. Sorry, I was partying like it was 1999. Like I it was, was ready. yeah. So <laughs> a in your pocket and it's ready to go. He's like, where do I go from here? Thad is still very young, of course. At 19, you have, you know, potentially the rest of your life in front of you, many years in front of you. And he's in a place of deconstructing from a strict religious upbringing in Utah where he and his family were Mormons. They found out while he was at his mission training, you know, how uh, they go to like a little, you know, mission training, like it's like a little camp where they are taught how to like go door to door and evangelize and stuff. I did not know stuff. this was a thing, but okay. Okay. Yeah. So he's there at it and he gets pulled out because it's been found out that he's had, well, not only has a girlfriend, but that he's had premarital sex with her. Uh -oh. He gets kicked out and his parents pick him up and they're pissed. And they sit him down when they get home. <laughs> Essentially the conversation, according to Thad, the, you know, our main character here, villain, main villain. Yeah. Um, it, they sit him down and it's basically because we love you, you have two months to find another place to live. You cannot go to your room. You cannot have any of your old things. Whatever you came home with in that bag is the only thing you own now. We don't want to see you. So basically from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., we want you out of the house. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear you. We don't want to talk to you. Figure it out. You have two months. Shit. According to him. So he's, he's disowned by his parents, by his family, or yeah, by his parents. And he gets married to his girlfriend, whose name is KD. It's very similar to you. You have a K and a T. She's actually KD. Like K-A-Y-D-E-E, K-D. And they get married and they're basically just two kids trying to figure it out and get by. He's taking classes at the University of Utah and has some student loan debt already, but he's not sure what he wants to pursue for career until he comes across the brochure in the career center that says astronaut. Astronauts are two paths with it. And he mm. knows that if he were to try and be an, a pilot, you know, of the shuttles and rockets and everything, that that is a very specific career path. He would have had to have gone through Air Force or the Navy. He yeah. had to have been one of like their star pilots because pretty much that's the feeder system for pilots is through the right. military. The best of the best. Right. Mm -hmm. To be fair, they've been trained to handle the G-force and everything. So I understand why they would pull a fighter jet pilot over. Mm -hmm. They'd probably right. be the only most prepared one for it. Yeah. So that's a pilot. But 
you can be an astronaut and be one of the mission specialists. There are the other people that go up that, you know, are like, okay, I'm going to be the botanist on board who works on plant life in space. And I'm going to be this engineer who's here. If things go wrong, I can fix stuff in space. And, you know, so they each have their own role and they come from different fields and they can all still be an astronaut and be just as badass, really. Let's say the smart one that goes up there is like, here, let me use my super science brain in another planet. That's great. So he goes home to his wife, Katie, and he tells her, that's it. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to go to Mars. This is what I'm going to start doing. And in order to be an astronaut and go to Mars and be picked up by NASA, I need to get my pilot's license. I need to learn how to scuba because they do all their training in a pool and I want to be able to be really good underwater. And I want to learn multiple languages. I want to stay, start taking classes for specific degrees at the university. And I need to impress NASA, basically. I need to build this resume that is going to impress NASA. <laughs> Casual. I <laughs> so mean, Katie. <laughs> shoot for the stars, man. Literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's going to land on the moon he, or Mars, maybe. So <laughs> stars, Mars. It's okay. Katie, she works full-time as a dental assistant, and then she's got a evening job part-time modeling. She's really lovely. She's really gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, good for her. But right. he tells her this, and instead of laughing in his face or gently discouraging him to be like, maybe let's not be an astronaut. Let's find something else for you to do or anything like that. And she's like, yeah, all right. You want to be an astronaut? I'm going to take a third job. Because she's amazing. This woman, right? I was right? going to say, she's the true hero of this story mm -hmm. right here. Yeah. And he does. He jumps in both feet, becomes an astronaut. Well, to become an astronaut. Not there yet. 2001. He's doing it. He's worked uh, these last several years. He's got a triple major in physics, geology, geophysics. He's founded the University of Utah's Astronomical Society and has built it up into like the top science club on the campus. Yeah. Holy crap. He actually like put effort in. Yeah, he's he's doing big stuff. He volunteers all the time. He is uh, going on archaeological digs with the ar archaeology department. <laughs> and then Casually. he's working. Yeah. And then he's working in the uh, museums or the campus's museum categorizing minerals and stones mm -hmm. and like working on the storage of that and putting everything in its place, inventory, that kind of stuff. And he has his pilot's license. He is a certified expert in scuba diving. He's taking Japanese and Russian classes. He's been working hard and he's awaiting a phone call with NASA's Johnson Space Center cooperative program. The internship program is what supplied NASA with all the young talent since the 60s. Yeah, so on average, 800 people applied for 50 spots. Thad gets one of these spots and he goes to Houston while Katie stays back in Utah. When he gets there, it's like nerd excitement, right? Like <laughs> geek out over space stuff. It's He's me on the Lord of the Rings convention. I got it. <laughs> He's meeting all these other young people who are brilliant and like doing cool things in their field. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is assigned to the geology lab where he is immediately greeted by more cool stuff and more cool people. He gets to 
work on volcanic rock, work, work on cutting them. So that way, if he gets sent up into space, he understands how to use the tools to cut the right. rocks, to bring them back, to study them. He gets to work with this cool new substance called liquid smoke, which at the time they're like, you know, our next focus is Mars and this is going to be a really cool insulation material and it works like this and this is a whole thing. So he's like, this is amazing. Yeah. I'm learning all some cool new, like cool, awesome new things. He's having a great time. He's having a great time. He loves it. So here's how it works. With the co-op program, you get three tours, as they call it. They're semester-long tours. You're at NASA for a semester, and then you finish out your studies the rest of the year at your respective university. So he goes back and forth between the University of Utah and at NASA. So the first night that he's there, at least the first weekend, he's invited to this monthly pool party that all the co-ops do together. And it's a rager for one thing. It's a, it's a bad part. <laughs> it's a rager. It's a rager. So it's a pretty kicking party. I wrote that. <laughs> I wrote rager. I, I, yeah. not, I am not surprised <laughs> that you wrote that. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's a great party. It is. So being a Mormon kid growing up, though, he doesn't have party experience. You know, he's not oh. used to being around like a lot of cool, hip young kids and, mm -hmm. um, you know, drinking. He doesn't drink really. And so um, it was pretty much just him and his wife, especially because he was married so young. They were just their own social circle. Mm -hmm. And uh, he realizes that being this sort of odd man out, he's married, um, as well as slightly outside the average student age range. He's like okay. 22, 23 at this point. Most of them are 19, 20. So it's, it's not really a big difference, but yeah. in college, that's, that's a big enough difference, I guess. But he's like, I'm out of my hometown. I'm away from college and my family and stuff. Like this is a time that I can invent who I want to be. And I can like come out of my shell and be this person I want to be, which mm -hmm. sounds okay on the surface. I mean, that's what college kind of is, you know, is to like right. find yourself, right? Sure. <laughs> so he decides that he's going to like, realize himself here oh boy and he, it's and the way so, you say it that makes me nervous i know i'm holding my own hands because i'm like oh this guy so he's like hey this would be a really cool thing if we did this every week wouldn't this be so cool if we did this every week and they're like well for nasa kids <laughs> we're going to be working really hard we can't really like party every weekend but right you know nice idea guy um, and here's a moment also because I was holding my hands and I was grimacing as I was telling you that earlier, let's take a moment to tell you a little bit about Thad, because even though, <laughs> even though he was kind of like a shy Mormon kid or whatever, he did have this sort of wild streak that was a little bit, well, a little bit unpredictable, I should say. Okay. Risk taker. He's got these bright green eyes. Um, the pictures I saw, he kind of reminded me of Andrew Lincoln from The Walking Dead. He's a British oh, actor, English uh, actor. Um, he's the cop. He's also in Love Rick Actually. Rick Grimes. Rick Grimes, yeah. Rick Grimes. Coral. Yeah. That guy. Got it. Yeah. Kind of looks he a little didn't... bit like him. Okay. So he, what I'm saying is he's not like 
a swamp monster. <laughs> no, he's, <laughs> he's not unattractive. <laughs> he's not a swamp monster. Well, I mean, bless him for that, dude. I am when I wake up in the morning. But, you know, so he's, he's very charismatic, you know, but um, he's essentially like, well, why don't we, why don't we do this? Why don't we turn this into like sort of a bonding experience, part of our educational experience with NASA and we start doing something every week, you know, like maybe make it a little game. Like, let's see who does the coolest thing during their week. And then mm. we'll come back and share what we did and whoever's the coolest wins. <laughs> yeah. He just wants to be cool. He's really insecure, I guess. Um, Get a cat, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he needs one. And so they're, all the kids are like, well, like, what cool thing? Like, get it, an astronaut's autograph? Oh, maybe maybe try and, like, get the, the astronaut's helmet. Oh, that would be cool. Like, we can take, oh, a, take picture a picture of the helmet. Oh, maybe, like, get a picture of mission up. control. <laughs> yeah. He comes out, you only got half of your head. <laughs> Remember when you had to the take helmet. the rolls of film? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're asking somebody who's nearly a decade older than you. Oh, I know. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and Thad's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sneak into building five and I'm going to get right next to the space shuttle simulator. And a hush falls over the pool. Everyone's like, the space shuttle simulator? No way. No one gets in there. You only get in there if you're an astronaut or if you're part of like the crew right. doing the simulation. You know, no one gets in mm -hmm. there. You don't get to just visit. You're going to get caught. You're going to get thrown out of the program. Like, what are you risking it all for? But that does it. And it went way easier than he thought, unfortunately for him. Right. <laughs> unfortunately for us, really, I should say. Now he has <laughs> like, like fake courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of those moments, uh, which he has many of, especially throughout the book. Uh, one of these moments where being confident or maybe dumb enough, but I would say confident enough to get in there. A little bit of both. A little bit of bullshitting, right? And he's, his timing was that he got right in there at the shift change. Mm -hmm. So he's not he's only- He's clever. Yeah. He's not an idiot, that's for sure. Um, so not only does he, he get, in there and right next to the simulator, but the team doing the simulating, for, you know, the simulation and running the equipment are like, oh yeah, you're here for the monthly test. And he's like, yes, yes, I am. Yes, I'm here I for the am. Monthly test. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's great. The rest of the team is already on board. There's a seat open for you. They're just getting buckled in now. So you can, oh, you can hop God. in with them. And he's like, yes, the test. Yeah, I'm here for it. So he pops in there and then, uh, you know, he goes through the simulation. It's like, this is the best day of my life. And it's a whole great thing for him. But then the pool party that week, then he looks like he's king of the co-ops. And everyone's like, oh, my God, you're so cool. The girls are into him. He's like, they didn't, I'm amazing. He didn't get in trouble. Mm -mm. Oh, that's smooth criminal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. There's that There's trouble. <laughs> Meanwhile, Katie's fucking busting her ass over three jobs back at home. Uh huh. Yeah. Poor girl. But you know what? It, hey, if if that's getting him, well, maybe not that instance, but in, right. these, in these following instances, he's got, uh, you know, he's he's getting in with the interns uh, mm -hmm. and becoming very popular. That gets the faculty to notice him. He's getting in with like the 
the crew and the scientists there right. that he's working with. And, uh, you know, he's, he's making friends and, and being mentored by, um, people that have more letters after their name than in them, you know, like really, mm -hmm. really big yeah. things, you know, and one of them happens to be an Apollo mission scientist named Dr. Everett Gibson. I love Dr. Gibson. Yeah. He's, he's my guy in this story. Okay. So he's Dr. my guy. <laughs> he's my guy. So he was one of the first scientists tasked with preparing and studying the lunar rocks brought back from the various Apollo missions, science of life, pathogens, any unknown materials, studied, you know, studied them. It became his life's work. And he's also studying uh, meteorites as well, too. Particularly uh, one that he found that scientists believe came from Mars. Oh. So they're like, we've got this Mars what we think to be a Mars meteorite. So that we can study that now too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wrote, he's a literal and figurative rock star in space science. Oh man. I see what you did there. You're so funny. <laughs> so, so Thad being in geology, he really looked up to doc, Dr. Gibson and got to work under him, um, to That's a certain, certain degree. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. However, as well as things were going with work and education, Thad says things weren't going great at home. And I say Thad says, because I think Katie didn't realize that there would be something wrong in Thad's mind, you know? I think Thad might maybe be trying to make it seem like things were worse than they were at home. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Katie and Thad aren't doing amazing. The book says that there's some friction that um, they don't really talk as much and, you know, they don't see each other, which, yeah, I suppose not seeing each other all the time. That's, it's tough. Well, she's in like, Utah and he's where all the way down in Texas. He's in Houston, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so he's, he's gone semesters at a time, but she gets to visit and actually she's going to, she's going to visit him in 2001. Thad is there for his second tour now, the second semester tour. And Katie comes to visit him. And he was really proud to show her, hey, this is what I've been doing. This is where I work. And you get to meet the people I'm hanging out with and learning from. It's really cool. He's really excited to show this tour. So he's giving her this tour of the facility. And he takes her to meet Dr. Gibson. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, I was wondering if we might be able to see some of the moon rocks that you're studying. Because that's what Dr. Gibson has in his lab. He's like, can we mm -hmm. see and, or the meteorite or something? And he's like, yeah, sure. So they go into his lab. And Dr. Gibson has a huge safe. It's a five drawer safe. It looks a lot like a filing cabinet. It's okay. got a, a lock on it, but it's yeah. a safe, but it has, it has that same sort of outward look to it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, if you guys could just wait here outside the lab, I'll go, I'll go get him. So he boop, 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 goes into his lab, goes to the safe. Well, Thad is all like, He's been told to wait at the door, but he starts sticking his head and he's like looking around like, oh, cool lab, Dr. Gibson. That's neat. You know, just kind of looking around and he's noticing where Dr. Gibson's at, at the, um, at the safe. And he's looking at a little piece of paper and then he puts it back down on the top of the, the safe and then opens it all up. So he's like, oh, he just leaves the combination to his safe on top of his lab. That's, or on top of the, the safe there. Like that's. That's interesting. Okay. Hmm. All right. Thad, you bastard. 
And Dr. Gibson comes back and he shows some samples. Is and this he dude is... still alive? Mm-hmm. Oh, dude, I hope he never watches this. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to hear what I actually think of him. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this this just happened in 2002. And he was an intern. At Shit. So he's not much older than me, to be honest. Um, Thad, you devilish bastard. <laughs> Clever, but devilish. So, Dr. Gibson brings over a vial of the meteorite that he's been studying. Like, his meteorite that he discovered mm -hmm. from... They suspect to be from Mars. And it's this yeah. little thing that he likes to do for people, like for guests, say like, hey, here's a little piece of what we're studying, just to help inspire them. I think that's really cool because he's like, we can inspire more young people. It, yeah, and it this, takes you know? so long for things to get in and out of space. Like it takes years mm -hmm. to plan even for one of these. And then by the time, like it takes years for things to get to, like to Mars, I think it's like a six year trip or something like that. Mm -hmm. I thought, don't quote me on that. But so to get something back from that, it reminds you why all the long hours and all the hard work are worth it. Those things are really exciting to have that, that this physical real evidence of, Hey, this is why we do this stuff. Cause it's super mm -hmm. cool. This is from another planet. Isn't that wild? So yeah, he's, he's gifted this meteorite to Katie and by, by proxy Thad as well too. And it's like this really nice moment for them to be like, Oh wow, this is so cool what you're doing. While he's in his second tour, he gives it to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, wow. it's, it's, yeah. So it's it's something that he would do to some, well, I'm sure he doesn't do it now maybe, but that he would give little tiny pieces of it to guests and say like, Oh, wow. Yeah. It was really what kind. What a guy. Yeah. That's what Gibson. I said. Dr. Gibson. What's his name? Dr. Gibson? Dr. Gibson. Everett You're, Gibson. You rock, dude. Yeah. I mean, so to speak. <laughs> I did not mean to do that. <laughs> so it ends up being a really great weekend for them and, you know, Katie goes back home. While in, in his second tour, two things happen. One thing is Shea Sauer. Um, so I mentioned a little, a little while ago, Thad is like the cool guy. He's very charismatic. You know, mm -hmm. all, everyone thinks he's kind of neat. The girls are, a lot of the girls are kind of starry-eyed for him. Mm -hmm. And while he was taking the interns on one of his weekend trips now, so it turned from pool parties to like weekend excursions. He's become like this social director, basically. So he's, he's taking the interns out camping. Uh, and of course they were camping in an area that they weren't supposed to be camping in, but you can see the stars better. But since that's his MO is not doing what you're told, then, you know, it's par for the course, I guess. For me, well, at least I'm not this bad. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And while everyone's settling in for the night, you know, he's just like, oh, I'm going to look at the stars. And this this young lady sidles up next to him. And uh, the two end up kind of striking up a conversation. She's a little younger. She's one of the newer. She's a first year or first tour, you know, person. Um, mm -hmm. Intern. Into the intern. Thank you. And uh, he ends up, they end up just kind of, you know, connecting really well and just chatting like the whole night and telling and he basically just tells her everything about him, like his family life and how he's not doing too well with his wife back home. And he finds out that she's like really insecure, really shy. And, you know, she's just trying to make friends and do the best she can at NASA. And she's, it's a whole thing, you know? Yeah. So they become fast friends um, during the rest of their time at the, in the NASA co-op program. I'm just going to have you put a pin in her. Like, you know, put it, put her in your back pocket for a minute. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to her. But she's like his girl bestie while we're there. The other thing that happens 
is that Thad is introduced to NASA's Lunar Lab and its vast inventory of space rocks. Now, this is the perfect moment to talk about the lunar samples from the Apollo missions. July 20th, 1969. Humans land on the moon. American humans, to be precise, which you know, right. means that the United States won the space race against the Soviet Union, despite the Soviets being first in just about every other marker <laughs> for it. You know, they're yeah. the first to do a lot of other things, but America was first on the moon and therefore, boom, they won the space race. And that lunar landing was Apollo 11. That was the Apollo 11 mission. Yep. There were a total of 14, which ended with Apollo 17. You know, in terms of, I know the math doesn't seem to work out there. It's, no, I know. Ends with I, Apollo 17. Yeah. 14 total, yeah. Because not every mission landed on the moon after 11. There were six total lunar missions. Five mm -hmm. of them were successful to land on the moon and collect, collect data and samples. The unsuccessful one, if you're curious, was Apollo 13, in which there's a movie about that. Yeah. <laughs> so they were supposed to go to the moon. They didn't, but thankfully they all lived. So after the Apollo missions, after Apollo 17, there were no more lunar landings. So as far as we know, we are not going back to the moon as it stands. What we got from the moon, what the astronauts got from the moon, I was up there with a the little shovel, like, uh, what the <laughs> astronauts got from the moon, not me. Um, that's all we have. So whatever samples we have is what we've got. And they're kept in this lunar lab. It is illegal for someone that is not actually NASA, like not that lunar lab, not even the astronauts themselves, that is not NASA to own a moon rock. With the exception of there were um, a certain amount of countries and states that were given a small sample from the Apollo 17 rock that, you know, is a whole um, a, a symbol and statement on like our friendship with the world and mm. um, a symbol of humanity and living together in unity and science and stuff like that. So those were gifts. We need more space rocks then. <laughs> we need to get back up there because. You get a space rock, you get a space rock. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of what it was. So if you were not personally gifted one from the United States government, from NASA, then it is illegal to own one. But Thad knows, according to Dr. Gibson, when he found out that people have tried selling them before, that one gram of moon rock was um, put up for $5 million. So it has a value of up to 5 million per gram. Wow. Street value wise. Street There's not value, really yes. a monetary value on all this, but street value, someone might pay a lot of money for it. And that's what that thinks. You know, according to his story in the book, he's like, man, you can't put a price tag on lunar samples, on, on space rocks. This is for the good of humanity and the good of science. You can't put a price tag on that. All the samples in the highly restricted two-people code authorization Fort Knoxian lunar lab right, are kept in this huge underground vault. It's built to survive strong hurricanes and outside assault and bombs and stuff like that. Like it's specially pressurized, sanitized. You have to get suited and booted, have like all the hair stuff in, you know, particles from your lungs get, I don't know, it's a whole thing. You don't get into it so easily is, is what I'm saying. It's a whole right. process. Yeah. They're highly protected. There are 110,000 samples equaling 842 pounds that are kept in this lab. And Thad gets asked, 
asked by Dr. Andrea Cooper, who works in the Lunar Lab. She's in charge of it for the most part. She's like, hey, would you mind doing some inventory? It's going to suck, but you get to hang out in the Lunar Lab for a while. And he's like, yes, yes, ma'am. Doc, I am in. Sign, Sign me, up. me up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> While doing this inventory, Thad notices this little door, this little area, and he asks Dr. Cooper about it. He's like, do we need to go in there and do stuff? Like, what is that all about? And she's like, oh, we will be inventorying that, but it has to be separate because that is where the return samples are kept. And we don't want them to get mixed back in. The return samples are bits of, you know, lunar material, rock that have been loaned out to non-NASA scientists and scholars. Uh, they've been tested. They've been exposed to outside air and pollutants and other chemicals and elements and things like that to, you know, test and do science on. So they're no longer pure samples. Right. They're still valuable because they're moon rocks, you know, so that's still, they're still valuable. They're not throwing them right. out the dumpster, but because, you know, they might not have as much scientific value in terms of the testing because they have been tested with other things. Dr. Cooper jokingly refers to, he's like, she's like, yeah, I mean, they're still valuable to us, but as far as science experimentation is concerned, they're, they're kind of trash, but we, you know, we still keep them and keep them on hand. And that it's kind of like taken aback by the word trash, or as he says, she says trash. <laughs> and yeah. so Dr. Cooper goes on to explain, quote, the whole point of this place is to house lunar materials to be used by scientists for experimentation. The monetary value of these rocks is kind of besides the point. And I wouldn't get too hung up on the whole trash concept. Only about 2% of our entire collection is in the return vault, end quote. That's page 93 of the uh, ebook edition of Sex the on the Moon. ebook edition. Yeah, to rent it from the library. <laughs> so amazing. I'm glad I didn't spend money on this book because it pissed me off. But anyway. <laughs> so All right, you heard it here first. <laughs> Sex on the Moon. Got it. Don't spend money on it. So Thad does some quick mathematics, and he realizes that 2% would be about 17 pounds, which if he's using that high-end range of that $5 million per gram street price, that would mean that the return vaults alone, those 17 pounds, would be worth 44, approximately, $44 billion with a B. Holy crap. So... Another thing that we should probably point out about our old Thad Roberts here, um, we know that he's not great at following rules. And then also he doesn't like it when something cool that's historical or scientific is not used in the way that he thinks that they should be used. So, for example, you know how I said he used to volunteer doing a lot of inventory and storage for the University of Utah's campus museum. Mm -hmm. Right, He used to like be involved in all those rocks and stuff like that. Well, they had a similar sort of setup where they're like, okay, well, these rocks aren't quite pretty enough to get put on display or we have an overabundance of them. So only this, this many are going to go out. So these are going to be kept down here in storage and we're just going to put them in the corner for now. There they are. And he's like, no one puts these rocks in the corner. Like, I think they're beautiful. I think they're amazing. I'm going to take them home with me. So right. I'm just going to sit with that for a second. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I, I feel the same way at work. This this money is too pretty to be sitting here. I should just take some home with me. 
Right. Hello, federal prison. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. He does have problematic behavior. He makes me look like an angel. <laughs> so after these inventory hours at the Lunar Lab, the book says, and that's why I say the book a lot of times because this is kind of his story. The book says that's when things change for Thad. He saw his plan, you know, being that he's going to hopefully go through this program, be liked enough to get hired on at NASA, then do well enough that he can move up in an astronaut track and walk on Mars. You know, so there's a lot of steps here still to it. And he's reinvented himself during this time at NASA, but he's like, it feels like an act. This doesn't necessarily feel like me and where I want to go and who I want to be. I'm going to put some heavy eyebrows and like winks with that one. I don't know about that. He mm -hmm. says his marriage isn't great. You know, he's looking at it and thinking, I don't know if we're going to be together much longer. Our marriage might end. I, I have no other like fallback plans. Yeah. With that kind of attitude. Damn, son. Right. Like you've worked so hard to get to this point. You're doing so well. Why are you all of a sudden being like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I get it. You might doubt yourself sometimes, but come on, bro. Let's keep it going here. And uh, he's working freaking three jobs, like three jobs. Right. She's supporting you. Anyway, so what mm -hmm. the documentary says is that he probably had the theft of a moon rock in his mind for quite some time because on that visit with Katie, when she came and they got that little meteorite sample mm -hmm. and, and all that, um, she says that her and Thad were looking at some lunar samples and he looked at her and was like, wouldn't it be cool if we just could have this? Like we could just have this and, and own this and take this home, which I, she was like, yeah and she kind of laughed it off because she's like well yeah it's it'd be cool to own moon rock and be like oh wow how cool she's like but it's it's moon rock you know yeah. it's like it's like yeah I'd love to, yeah like i would love to own the i don't I've know i've always wanted a seal from the zoo but we both know it's not gonna happen i right. love those blubbery little bastards they're so cute and they slap their tummies with their fins and do the most cutest sealish things I've ever seen in my life. Again, an unrealistic dream. I know I can't take one of the Brookfield Zoo uh, seals home with me, however much I would like to. It's highly illegal. You can't do it. You can't, you do, can't it. do it. I don't so. have a swimming pool either. <laughs> or enough ice cubes. There's a lot of points going against you for this, basically. I've thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So he's back home after his second tour at NASA. He's back in, in Utah. And he happens to meet lovable stoner Gordon McWhorter during one of his astronomy club star parties at the observatory. Every Wednesday, they'd have a stargazing party and it was a whole mm -hmm. thing. But the party itself itself was actually canceled because it was so cloudy. You couldn't see the stars. And so he's yep. like, so being the president, club president, he sits up there and just like hangs out just to tell people, hey, by the way, it's canceled. You know, because the internet's not like quite like Facebook oh, right. yet and stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. It's not as fast as it is now. <laughs> Someone's still got to be there. But uh, old Gordon shows up smoking a J. He comes up there with, with his joint. And uh, he's like, oh, hey, guy smoking weed. Um, the party's not going on tonight because you can't see the stars. And uh, Gordon's like, it's cool, man. I'll just stare at clouds if I can't see stars. All right, Gordon. Sure. Sure, man. But the two of them end up talking for hours and really getting to know each other. And Thad later has this thought, again, according to the book, 
that, hey, since Gordon doesn't mind some criminal activity, like openly smoking weed on school property, maybe he knows a thing or two about other kinds of illicit activity. Smoking on, weed Dad. and illicit activity are actually further apart than I think people realize <laughs> they are. Yeah. I know. A, a lot of us thin. are just peaceful snackaholics. <laughs> this, this figure doesn't keep itself up, girl. I got to put the <laughs> calories in the work in. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. It takes effort. That's like, okay, well, if, hypothetically speaking, if I happen to have some valuable rocks to sell, do you think you might be able to get a buyer? Gordon, hmm, here's Gordon's side of the story in the documentary. Gordon says, uh, when Thad asked him, he said that he had been connected to a Honduran prince who was looking to sell a piece of the lunar rock gifted to him from the United States. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that's not a weird thing. There was a piece of the rock given to... Honduras, basically, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, not basically Honduras. It was given to right. Honduras and the uh, country, the country. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they've been gifted around the world. So Gordon's like, oh, well, if it's to help, you know, this prince who legally has one, because I know they're illegal to own. Um, Gordon's like, yeah, sure. I'm good at internet. I'll help you out. So Gordon's like, I'll help you out. And he sends an email out to rock collectors and real Rockhounds, as they're called, outside the United States, because again, rockhounds, rockhounds, yeah. So, enter Belgian Axel Emmerman. Axel Emmerman. He gets an email from an Orb Robinson, who is Gordon and Thad's pseudonym. That was their email pseudonym, coming from Tampa, Florida. Like they, they say they're located in Tampa. They're not, but that's what they say. Okay. Selling quote a rare multi-carat moon rock. Would you be interested? Who wouldn't? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, Axel had been collecting rocks since he was first hooked by them at eight years old. He belonged to the Antwerp Mineral Club since he was 16. Our boy Axel loves rocks. And because he loves his rocks, he remembers being a younger man and seeing U.S. President Richard Nixon gifting the king of Belgium one of these lunar samples. Mm -hmm. And he remembers watching how much security was around this little tiny bit of rock. He also knows that because he's a rock hound that it's illegal to actually own moon rock outside of gifted governments and monarchies. So he thinks like when these emails come around, cause they do every once in a while, it's a hoax. Yeah. Obviously like no one actually sure. owns moon rock and is trying to sell it. They're it's a, it's a hoax or someone means me moonstone, which is very common mineral to get, or it's a, you know, and, or really I should say is it's a scammer trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes. Either right. way, it's not okay. However, there are enough clues in the email to keep Axel from deleting it. So most people would delete it right away, but he was like, there's something kind of weird about this. The pseudonym itself for the person's name is Orb Robinson, which sounds an awful lot like Roy Orbison, the musician, a uh, pretty woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Who, fun fact time, actually has a degree. Actually, I should say had a degree in geology. Hmm. So Doesn't there's seem somebody like here accident. that like that knows what they're doing. And so Axel goes to other um, boards for mineral clubs and mineral sales and rock collectors. And he finds that this Orb Robinson is posted all over these boards. Oh. And then he finds out at his meeting the next night at the Antwerp Mineral Club that everybody in the club 
also got the same email. Uh And so he's like, oh, well, someone's trying really hard. And so hoax or not, you know, if this is a scam, this is still not okay. And so we need to look into it. I got to do the right thing. And so he like, like, that's my little cast in a fishing line. So he, he sends out a line and he replies back and he says, yeah, I might be interested if the price is right, but do you have any proof that you have like legitimate goods? Like, is this actually moon rock or is, you know, like I need proof here. I'm not paying an insane amount of money. Yeah. Well, the asking price ends up being a lot less than that, but he's like, I'm not paying a ton of money because I'll know if it's real or not, you know, like you can't just give me anyway. So he casts his line out. He gets a bite. Um, Thad and Gordon come back and say, yeah, you know, this is, this is real. We have the largest private collection. So you have to understand that there is um, need for secrecy of what we're doing and this and that, you know, like we need to, you know, but we need to move quickly with this, but it is real. And talk back and forth goes from, multi-carat so carrots so basically like you know diamond the, ring, you yeah, know what i mean exactly, you know, for jewelry right two grams two kilograms and and axel's like either this orb person has brass balls to try and hoax the hell out of me as brazenly as he is by saying mm-hmm. he has kilograms of lunar rock um or this is actually for real and so he <laughs> Meanwhile, is doing a Google search for FBI Tampa division and <laughs> he contacts the FBI in Florida and it's like, wow. So we've gotten emails from this guy claiming to have moon rock. He's trying to sell it. He even says like he has a connection with NASA. So like, either way, it's not okay what he's doing and we think you should know about it. Right. So there we go. That's what's going on in the background. All right. So back to NASA. Like many things in Thad's life, as I mentioned earlier, but you know, especially here at NASA, it seems like there's all these different fall opportunities that fall in his lap because he's in the right place at the right time, but he's also a bit of a bullshitter. And so like, he's, he's got some great advanced programs he's into. He's made great connections. Um, really he has a lot going for him entering into this third and final tour of the co-op program. The first weekend of his third tour begins in spring, 2002. Thad Roberts, as I said, is doing these weekly excursions. He is the unofficial, official social director for the co-op program. And he's decided to take all the interns to Galveston Island for a night on the beach, cliff diving, or no, cliff jumping, don't dive, cliff jumping. <laughs> it's a 50-foot drop, too, I find out. I'm like, what? no, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't be stupid. That sounds um, like something drunk okay. college kids would do. No, don't do that. So on the beach, uh, bioluminescent algae. Which I love that. And bioluminescent algae. Oh, I see. She's covered a barnacle. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever you have you ever seen it with your eyes before? I've not. I, I really have want to. seen a picture of a spot in the ocean in the Indian Ocean, I believe, where there's this like beautiful blue glow in this bay. It's like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It's somewhere over either in, um, is it Sea of India or Indian Sea? You know what I'm talking about? Over there, or it's closer to Indonesia. That And I've seen pictures of okay. that, but that's it. Okay. Like at night, though. 
when you see yes. it at night it glows yeah yes mm -hmm. so we have that here yeah they have it on galveston island so i'm gonna go check that out sometime i think it's so pretty i've never seen it with my eyeballs but i see it in movies and i'm like yes um anyway that's what they're there for <laughs> I put myself on the beach. I was like, this is lovely. All right. No, but I mean, back to the story. I was there with you. <laughs> Just let it wash. Um, so on the ferry over to Galveston Island, he's with all the kids. He's walking and mingling and talking and being all like Thad Robertsy. And he meets um yeah, he meets this young lady named Tiffany Fowler. Okay, now I'm gonna go with what the book talks about, you know. So this is kind of from his perspective, of course. So okay. He, she, he sees her and like the world stops kind of thing. It's just that moment of like, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. Dark hair, bright blue eyes. He describes her as uh, being made from porcelain. She's got this you know, porcelain skin. And um, so she's 20. I think he's like 23, 24 at the time. And she's already being described as this brilliant scientist. She's working in botany. And she is allowed to run her own plant life photosynthesis experiment. With, and with Mars, you know, being NASA's next mm -hmm. goal, growing plant life is like the big priority. So they're like, oh my gosh, you can run this experimentation, experiment, you can run this experiment. And uh, yeah, she's already been, she, like, she's just gotten into the program and she's being hailed as like this next big scientist. Cool, good for her. Like, I think that's amazing. Go right. smart ladies in STEM. So. He meets her, he's stunned, oh my goodness. And everything he says feels different when he meets her, um, immediately smitten and you know, in love even. And the two begin an affair. So they have a first date and then after that first date, they're inseparable. And mm. um, to the point where KD calls to like get a hold of him. This is talked about in the documentary, but it's not mentioned in the book, I should, I should mention. Mm-hmm. Uh. It's a bit redundant, mention, mention. But yeah, so the book says one thing, the documentary says another thing. In the documentary, Katie says that she had called him and would call him and call him. And, and it got to the point where Thad's roommates were like, yeah, he's not here anymore. He's actually moved in with another woman and like we haven't seen him here for uh, wow. you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. And she's like, I'm sorry, what now? What's going on? And uh, so Katie confronts that about this of course you know and she's like what's going on who is tiffany and uh katie in the documentary says that that's like i love you I i'm only using her for something i can't tell you what it is it's not what it seems like don't like oh. don't worry about it get yeah. the fuck out right now you I lying, love you slimy little i'm not even mm -hmm. gonna insult toads by comparing them to thad because <laughs> he is a lower life form <laughs> Even worms uh, are above you. And now Tiffany, she rarely gets talked to, but um, like, I don't think she's really talked about, like was really interviewed much for the book or she's, and she's definitely not interviewed at all or on camera for the documentary. But there is one thing that, you know, is, was provided, that she provided. She said that um, dad liked to think of himself like James Bond and mm -hmm. that everything was just like this one big adventure, one big dare almost if you will so that's what tiffany says about him okay. that's like the only thing that we'll, you'll really hear from her in the first two to three weeks that tiffany and thad are together this is the same sort of window i'm going to bring axel emmerman back in here so that's the same sort of window and time that's going on and his interactions 
with Axel and trying to sell these moon rocks, that stress is starting to play out in his daily life. And those closest to him, namely Tiffany and his girl bestie Shay, um, are starting to see it. Like they're starting to see that he's stressed or like kind of like be somewhere else while he was with them. And um, <laughs> and so the students all get back from watching Apollo 13 in the actual mission control center. And it's like one of their social nights. And Thad and Tiffany come back to her apartment and she's like so amped. She's like, this is amazing. Like they're basically cowboys just strapping themselves to a rocket and they're going off into space. This like final frontier. This is amazing. Like this is so cool that we get to be a part of this thing. And then, and he's again, this, this fucking book, uh, but he's <laughs> sorry, this book. Yeah, I like to show the differentiation here, but, and it's this moment where he's like looking at her and he's, she's so excited and he's like, loves her passion and her excitement for what they're doing. And, and he's like, um, uh, she, you know, she's talking about going to the moon and stuff. And so he has this, this moment of linear thinking here where he's like, uh, yeah, movie, uh-huh. Apollo missions, lunar landing moon rocks. And he's like, Hmm. And she's like, you're doing the thing again. Like you're upset. Like, is it me? Are you mad at me? What's going on? So anyway, <laughs> he finally tells her this, hypothetical plan that's mm -hmm. forming. And this is the moment that he promises her the moon. He's like, I have if someone his who's... wife. I could have respected it, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, here we go. So, he's like, I have somebody who might be willing to buy it for a hundred thousand. And that's just one sample. You know, we could do so much money. We could do so much with that money together. Like we could, build you a lab and you can work on your botany and, and help promote your studies and put that money back into NASA. And we could really give back to science and just do something important here. And she's like, that's so romantic. Oh my God. I'm in. <laughs> These people. Again, this is what the book says. So who knows if he's coerced her more or not, but he promises her in the mood and she's like, I'm in. So emails now between Axel, the FBI and Orr Robinson resume. They're going and plans to move forward for the sale are underway, as well as the sting operation and getting Axel to testify and being a part of things to a certain degree. The many emails that Axel has gotten have been moved on to the FBI and they are noticing that they're getting some IP addresses from both NASA and at the University of Utah. Oh. So they're like, okay, so now we've got a connection here. But there's actually a couple of professors at the university that work at NASA too. So they're like looking at those guys oh. first because they're in both those locations. Right. They're not looking at co-ops necessarily because mm -hmm. getting your hands on moon rocks is a high security thing to begin with. They wouldn't right. think like the interns would be on it, right? So FBI is busy. And... Um, they, did you know that uh, NASA has like their own investigations force? I didn't know that until I read this. No, this... it's not Space Force, is it, with the military? No, that's different. Okay. Um, they're at the same like law enforcement or like job detail as the FBI and the Secret Service. But so they're is it like the NCIS for NASA. of NASA? I guess, yeah, maybe. Okay. I don't know. I've never watched the show. I don't, it, I don't know. NCIS is the Naval Military Police. Okay, it'd be something so sort of they, like that. So if it's a Navy assume, crime, they investigate. Yeah. Sure. Okay. It's, this is NASA like, yeah. CIS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So 
Um, you know, and, and because, so because of, of this, they don't want to just start walking in and being like, Hey, we know you work for NASA and the university of Utah. Like we, you know, what's going on. Like they don't want to scare this guy off cause they don't know who he is yet. They right. Have to, like catch him in the act kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, so they can't really be making a lot of phone calls over there. So they're just trying to do their own detective work between the NASA investigations and FBI. Mm-hmm. And the sting operation that they set up looks like this. So Axel's like, hey, I don't want to travel to the United States if these aren't real, but my brother and sister-in-law live in the United States now. And uh, she, my sister-in-law, she is a, a hobbyist rock collector and she'll be able to verify to a certain degree if they're real or not. I will give her some information to look for. And she's going to look at them. I trust her. Her name's Lynn. Turns out Lynn is uh, an undercover FBI agent. That's (laughs) pretty much what I expected. Yeah. Thanks, Orb. I've got this handle for Axel and, uh, you know, we're going to you know, I'd love to meet you because I understand this is a very delicate situation. You know, you have my top secrecy here. Uh, when can we, we can meet, we meet, when can we do this? And that sets up a meeting in Tampa, Florida for July 20th, which is the university, uh, which, which is the anniversary of the first lunar landing. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's coincidence or not, but you mm, know, I doubt it. Yeah. Okay. So Thad, Tiffany and Shay, Yes, Shay, the girl besties in on it too. They're moving into a three-part preparation plan. So phase one is some real spy movie shit, if it even happened at all. He goes to the cipher keypad. I know, I'm so annoyed at this part. He goes to the cipher keypad lock on the lab door that he plans to break into. And he brushes this combination of powder-fine crushed minerals on the keypad. Get the fuck out. He blows it off and he leaves. That's phase one. Phase two is he's borrowing his buddy's Jeep Cherokee, saying that he's helping a friend move for the weekend. Can I borrow your Jeep? Sure. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. Switches or takes a license plate off an old car and then like puts it on the Jeep. Okay. And then getaway car. Phase two. Phase three was that they rented this uh, like really secluded motel room, which is where they were going to bring the safe back to after the heist. And they're like, all right. We got our, our place set. There's nobody on either side. You know, like it's it's ground floor, easy access. I'm talking with my hands a whole lot. This is what you do all the time. You're just noticing it now because <laughs> you're on camera. <laughs> uh-huh. So the night of the heist, they had some sort of alibi in place saying that, you know, they're going to have a star party and they had to go get into NASA for the star party or whatever. And um, but it's like tropical grade rainstorm. Oh, okay. And they're like, oh no, our alibi is ruined. But they're like, wait a second, maybe the rain will actually help us because the rain, you know, no one's going to want to be out in it for one thing. Um, So the checkpoint security guys are not going to come and check the van or check the Jeep. And also it might obscure the cameras outside a little bit too, because it's raining Mm -hmm. so hard. Yeah. So they go through with it. The details of the heist itself vary because- the book says some things, mm-hmm. documentary says some says things, some, and yeah. even like the news articles say a couple different things. So uh, what does seem clear, at least, is that they all get in with no problems and they get out with, with no problems. Like, no one comes and checks them out. Oh. Uh, Shay waits in the Jeep 
and Tiffany and Thad sneak into building 31, which is the same building that Thad works in. Okay. They grab a dolly and then they go to the lab that was their target. Now here's the James Bond part, but here's the part that also made me want to throw this book across the room. So book version, that powder that he blew on the keypad, mm -hmm. you couldn't see it once he blew it off, but the trace minerals left behind would still glow under blacklight because it had fluorite in it. Okay. He also put talcum in it, which meant that as someone pressed the keypad, it would be, it would pick the oils on the fingers would pick up a little bit of the talcum. So it would be a, a faded series of numbers. Yeah. So he would know what order they were pushed in, you know? Okay. Mm, that's, that's a James Bond thing. Yeah. The book then goes on to say that he walks into the lunar lab and then is trying to enter another code for the return vault because he knows what it is because he was in there, you know, doing inventory. I say, wouldn't he have the code to the first door anyway? Cause he's done inventory. So interesting. So you say full this. of shit. So interesting. You say this. So he's putting this code and he's like, wait a second. It's not working. Oh, gee, I'm not in the lunar lab. I'm in my uh, mentor, Dr. Everett Gibson's lab. Here's why that makes no sense and why that makes me so angry. <laughs> because you know how I mentioned the, the same lunar... fucking thing. No, actually, no. So, oh. the, so the lunar lab is like that that vault, like that Fort Knox vault that you need two codes to get into. And hazmat like you have the hazmat suit. Yeah, you have got to, like, it. That's the lunar lab. Yes, with the return vault. Dr. Okay. Gibson just has his own little safe of his own samples because he's writing, He's that's his specific research. So right. he's in his own lab being able to do his own stuff with them. So. Right. He no, knew exactly. where he, he knew where he was going. He totally knew where he was going. It would be, it would be like me being, being lucky enough to be some sort of intern at the Smithsonian Institution and then being like, I'm going to steal the Hope Diamond and then being up there being like, wait a second, this doesn't look like the Hope Diamond room. Oh, I'm at my mentor's office stealing a shit. Oh, okay. like it doesn't make sense. There's two, there's no. two totally different things. He's there's so no full way of his own it. bullshit. He expected us to buy this too. Yeah. I didn't understand because I was even reading the book knowing that was, those were the only samples he would be able to get out. Right. Also knowing enough the story to be like, oh, I know that's, that's who's safe he took. But then I'm reading the book. I'm like, what is he saying? What is he talking about the lunar lab for? Like, there's no way he's getting in the lunar lab. He needs a, a second person to like enter right. in their special code, you know? Right. So anyway, that's what the book says happens. We Here's all what know the FBI says. <laughs> Here's what the FBI says. So they say that he knew that he was going to Dr. Gibson's lab to take samples out of his safe because he knew that they were in there. He watched Dr. Gibson at the safe doing stuff. He watched him that one day and, mm, and saw him put the piece of paper down. Yeah. And so he thought he's just got the, the combination sitting up on top of his safe. I'm going to just walk on in there, turn the uh -huh. dial a few times and, and get out. Well, one, the FBI says that he spent 30 minutes trying to figure out the keypad. So he didn't do any sort of powder dust thing. <laughs> and you'd think after 30 minutes, like, there should be some sort of shutdown system. If someone's trying to just enter your code right? in over and over again, like there is but, now, I guarantee anyway, you, because I'm sure I experienced this as well. 
<laughs> in, in a totally so, different setting, but yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and they said that the, the code that he, or the combination that he thought was on top of the safe wasn't actually the combination at all. It was an algorithm that Dr. Gibson had created to help him remember what the he combination. needed to do So, yeah. So there was no way that uh, Thad was going to be getting in there. And so he pops his head back out to, to Tiffany, who's waiting outside the lab. And he says, hey, uh, you're going to need to help me move a 600 pound plus safe. So let's get it on the dolly. And she's like, tiny, what? you know? Yeah. Somehow they managed to do it. Now this is, this is real life. They did somehow manage to get the safe on the dolly and maneuver it back out again to the Jeep without getting caught somehow. Um, but they get back to their hotel room. They saw the safe open, no one busts them then. And in the safe, there were rocks from every single Apollo mission. Holy shit. The Martian meteorite. Oh my Alex, God. Dr. Gibson had, or at least part of it. Yeah. And this is, ooh, okay. This made me so angry. 30 years of Dr. Gibson's research on lunar rocks and geology. Notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of all of his research and his ex experiments. I want to ask if he ever got them back, but I know that it's coming. So I just will sit quietly and let you tell me. Yeah. Just hold your, hold your hands, girl. Now Shay sees this. I, God bless Shay for this one. Shay sees this and she's, I mean, she's already been nervous about this whole heist thing the entire time, but she's yeah. been roped into it, you know, and she sees this and she's like, well, we've got to send those back. That's Dr. Gibson's research. Yes. Like, this is important stuff. We can't mess with these. And that's like, no, throw them out. Monday morning. NASA finds out that the safe is missing and word spreads that shit's gone down, but no one knows what's happened. Like the co-ops are all like, I heard it happened in building 31. Like, Oh, like, does anyone know what happened? Meanwhile, Thad has used some of the official documents in the safe to fax to Lynn and the FBI say, look, they're real. Here they are. Mm. Real stuff here. Let's authenticate this. And Lynn FBI agent on the other end, and it's like, tick, 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 tick. great. <laughs> this looks amazing. Wow. Amazing. Excellent job getting proof. That was, that was wonderful. These are obviously legitimate. Let's go through that meeting on July 20th. And Thad and Tiffany drive to Tampa. They invite Shay and, and Gordon to go with them. Shay's like, no, I'm out. I'm out of here. And Gordon's like, yeah, man, I'll fly out there. Cause he's in Utah still. So he's like, yeah, I'll fly out there. I'll meet you. And Thad and Tiffany, with their stolen moon loot, they book a hotel room. And with Gordon in the room, they start price tagging and categorizing all of the different samples and vials. It's then said that Gordon runs out and gets some pizza for them. And uh, while he's gone, <laughs> Thad puts some of the samples, like the lunar samples, in the bed, like under the blankets or like under the pillows. And he and Tiffany have sex. So it's like they're the first people to have sex on the moon. They then head to their meeting with Lynn and the FBI doesn't know who they're meeting up with. They don't know what this guy looks like aside from a shirt description and like a, a, a necklace description. He's like, I'm going to be wearing this and this. That's how you're going to know it's me. Um, they don't know his real name. They don't know anything about him, how many people he's coming with. If he's armed, is he going to be dangerous? Like who mm -hmm. actually is this guy? So uh, there's a whole team of the FBI and NASA agents that are inside the, like the restaurant sitting at tables and then outside, like in cars and stuff. Yeah. Like all like keeping an eye on each other and stuff. 
while they're sitting there, Thad go tells Lynn and her her husband, who's husband, is another FBI agent who is um, pretending to be Axel's brother, um, speaking with an accent and everything. And uh, Thad tells the entire story of the theft. Like he just tells the whole thing, what happened, what they did. FBI is mic'd up, of course. They're getting all of it. And they go back to the hotel where there's this tackle box full of all these samples that they've labeled and they're keeping. And once they're there, agents swoop in and make their arrests. When the four students or the four co-ops, um, Thad, Tiffany, Shay, and Gordon were at their trials, the judge took into consideration not only the theft and that the lunar rocks now have been contaminated, um, you know, and they've been exposed in different ways and touched, but that they also got rid of 30 years of Dr. Gibson's research, which was never recovered. Yeah. The judge said something along the lines of, Thad Roberts can now go on and write a book about what he's done, but Dr. Gibson can't because all of his life's research is gone. Like you've taken that and you've taken so much from him, basically. Like You've a, taken like, so much from NASA as well. It's science, yeah. Like <laughs> Exactly. Like what we would know. This is the thing. It was the same thing with um, episode two, the great feather heist. Mm -hmm. These feathers were taken from this museum and now... You know, and they've been taken apart. So now science, these are the only feathers we're going to get of this, mm -hmm. you know, of, this, of many of these species. Yeah. And now science is never going to be able to continue experimenting. And they were doing big experiments in regards to um, bringing it back even like, well, like environmentalism, they were like looking at like air pollution and being able to, you know, like now they can't continue that research because mm -hmm. Those birds were taken and, you know, so same thing with these rocks. Now they still have more rocks in the lab. It's not like we can't do any more research on that anymore, but you know, Dr. Gibson now has basically had to 30 years though. At square one after 30 years. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Furious. I'm furious about it. Furious. This guy sucks. He sucks. Right. Okay. You can't tell me these stories and not expect me to get like borderline <laughs> violently angry. <laughs> The FBI, they search his home and they find that this isn't the first time that that has just been all grabby, grabby fingers with things that he shouldn't have. And they find mm. all the university campuses um, or museums, sorry, um, fossils that he's taken yes. in his house. Mm -hmm. Nearly done. <laughs> Thad was sentenced to eight years in jail. He served six of those. Gordon went to jail for four. The women were sentenced to three years probation as well as a $9,000 fine. That and Tiffany, Tiffany never spoke again. And the two women, again, they've never really been interviewed or they're never on camera for this. They've really faded from the scene and have not like have Probably really. Probably like, by their choice. Away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They like trying to stay, understandably so, you know, they want to stay distanced from it. Um, the FBI says that it was clear to them that Thad stole the rocks for money. Thad, in an interview and in the book Sex on the Moon, he says, I'm not really sure why it was kind of like a dumb, dumb mistake, dumb thing to do, but I really think it's for love. Thad now writes, he's love still like, money. In, yeah, yeah, maybe that. Uh, he, uh, he's still involved in space stuff. He writes about it. He's got a website. Um, he is kind of like a philosopher of space. He has what is it called? big thoughts. I think it's just, his, it's literally his name, I think. Of course it is. 
But I know Katie's really upset about it. But if you guys want my hot take on it, <laughs> um, I don't like that Thad gets to tell people what he wants, like give the details that he wants and look like some sort of James Bond character. Um, and like come now? out and get to, yeah. Yeah, well, that's yeah, bullshit. They, yeah, he should and, still be in prison. Um, you know, that he's a part of a TED Talk and the Sex on the Moon book, which, again, it's kind of seems to favorite. of itself, yeah. Uh, has his website with his you know musings on space theory and is trying to do things with that. Um, well, meanwhile, the women who were probably manipulated into helping him in some way, you know, or he used them and, um, you know, they had these bright futures in science, maybe being able to work full time for NASA. Mm -hmm. um, Katie, she busted her ass and she supported him. She three worked jobs. three jobs. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he's betrayed her. And then Dr. Gibson, his research has been erased. He's had to start all over again. If, if he can even do that, you know, I don't sure exactly say, what his research was, you know, I doubt he could, he will never be able to redo all of that, mm -hmm. but he might be able to remember certain spots where he, I don't know, man. Yeah, I know. And, uh, and it doesn't seem like that is really that sorry. Like He's he hasn't really come out and apologized. There's not a lot of remorse being shown. And, um, so that makes me mad. You know, if you care to know what I think about it, but if you want uh, some hot tea, hot, spill the spill the tea, the hot mm -hmm. gossip. Anyway, what the kids say. If you want to know a little bit more about how Thad might be a manipulative little liar pants and an interaction that he had with another student during that same time period, I would like to direct you all to the show notes to the Atlantic article written by Jamie Sverdin. I think mm -hmm. that's how her name is pronounced. Uh, Z v i r z d i n Sverdin. That was really interesting. So, like I said, down in the show notes, the article's called I Fell Under the Spell of NASA's Most Notorious Thief. But mm. uh, all in all, it is a it was a wild ride. And I needed to do quite a bit of cross-referencing and rewriting a few different sections to, like, make sure these perspectives are, are told, you know. Right. Um, but there you have it. The NASA moon rock heist. Dark. Uh, nursery rhymes. Uh, I know. I was like, I feel like mine was less of a downer on that. That shit was dark. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, so, so there's, there's that heist. Um, but I'm glad he was caught because yeah, I don't want those samples going. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, so I can't believe he, uh, I know we just won't go. I'm so, into it. I'm so mad about the research. That's like, just, I was like, no. And Dr. Everett Gibson, he's just the sweetest. He's interviewed a lot for the uh, the documentary, and he actually does a lot of talks now. Um, okay. So he has a, he a series of different talks meet, he does. Like, he should be allowed as part of Thad's, uh, I don't know, uh, community service, we'll say. He should be allowed to just no. punch him in the face <laughs> for every notebook he threw out. Yeah, we got seven. I think it looks like maybe like somewhere between five to seven punches in the face, which would be good. He deserves yeah, it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Katie Justice system. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not in charge. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, so there it is. There's our first video podcast, a big, a big one, a bit of an adventure and um, a Nostalgia and adventure. Yes. Rhymes and Dark nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, we learned, learned some things. Katie, thank you for uh, your 
journey into plagues and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Possible reasons for for dark things in history, but that's yeah, that's what happens. Like, and I and I'll do some reels on that about like um, history of some words or some phrases, and yeah. uh, you know, there's some interesting things you find. But yeah, it's it's like a little bit of something from here and a little bit of something from here, and you know, it, timelines don't quite match up in terms of when you know, when the song came out, which these well, I thought that was so really interesting because I was sold on the whole plague thing. And they're like, this means this, and this means this. And they went through the multiple uh, different versions. Like some of them mm-hmm. say to chew or and like, yeah, sneezing. Like a sneeze. yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> I, I was like, yeah, sold on it. They're like, actually it's false. I was like, what? This is like that damn cheese episode that Laurel did to me with the, was Hanukkah? It was a Hanukkah episode. Uh, Judith of Bethulia. Yeah. Yeah. Do Listen. you like cheese? <laughs> you had me at do you like cheese. I was like, this story is so ridiculous. It has to be true. Wrong. <laughs> Probably wrong. Maybe wrong. The same thing happened with the Valiant Ladies of Potosi. You know, there's these certain folk heroes where they're kind of passed off as being real history, and they might be, or they might be based on some people, but... Robin uh, Hood. <laughs> yeah, Robin Hood, right, exactly. So, a little bit of truth there, but it could be an amalgamation <laughs> of different historical actors, you know, so... Probably. And a little <laughs> bit of creative... Uh, what, what do they say? Give them... Creative liberties. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I feel good. I'm I'm still stoned. I went on our break and I had a had a little bit more of that joint. So that's that's great. Um, I'm so still I'm, stoned. I'm still so stoned, and we've been recording for ages. But it's been a great time. I hope everyone enjoyed themselves joining us on video and in your ears, in your ears, in your eyes. Um, we're gonna do it all again in a couple of weeks. I'm hoping that this can be the continuation of where we go, because. You know, hopefully this all edits okay and this comes out exactly how I need it to come out. But uh, <laughs> like fingers crossed, we're doing it. Hopefully it works. But we get to do it again going forward. So in two weeks, we're going to be back again to um, have episode 65. See what grand adventures we take into history at that time. But you know, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, folks, get money, get high, give love and... Protect your peace, man. Protect your moon rocks. Protect your peace. Protect your heart. Don't believe Thaddeus. Thaddeus. Whatever his name is. Thad Roberts. Oh, Thad. Thaddeus. He sounds more villainous as Thaddeus. He does sound more villainous as Thaddeus. Thaddeus Roberts. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, protect your peace. (laughs) Protect your heart. Don't have sex on the moon. Yeah. (laughs) Don't be one of those people. Yeah. Don't do that. Oh, my goodness. Bye. Bye, everybody. (laughs) 